Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Britta Ames is a USA Today best-selling mystery author. She's equally at home in the world of fast action, international fraud, the setting for her Bodies of Art series, or in small town Vermont, where her traditional cozy series, Organised Mystery, takes place. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today we're talking to Rita about the secrets of her success, her life before fiction and why she loves London and Cary Grant movies. But before we talk to Rita, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat plus links to Ritter's books and website and details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Ritter. Hello there, Ritter, and welcome to the show. It is great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for inviting me here today. Now, you write cozy mysteries. So beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you realized you needed to write fiction or somehow your life would be poorer for not doing it? And if so, was there a catalyst for that? Yeah, honestly, uh, the first time I realized books were written, and I know this sounds completely uh, ridiculous as an adult, but in fourth grade, I read Little Women. And until then, everybody was like, what do you want to be? Oh, a teacher, a nurse, whatever. Whatever anybody said was a good, good idea or anything. And when I read Little Women and I read the part where, where Joe March made her, her living as a as a writer, and I identified with Joe in the book, so that was part of it too. But it was like all of a sudden I realized somebody actually writes all those books. I mean, I had read books from the, from the time I first started reading, and I would see the author's name, but it didn't register that somebody actually sat down and wrote it. It was just they were just magically appearing in the library, and I would go check them out, you know. And um, and and so that was kind of the catalyst where it was like I can I can do this. People make a living at this, you know. So um, it was a long journey from fourth grade on. <laughs> but, but but that was something that at that point I realized that that was what I wanted to do. And so you know everything I did, even though I I did the same studies as everybody else. I still always tended to pay more attention to English and pay more attention to structure and that sort of thing. And um, so I guess early on, I was already training to be what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yes. Now, you are a USA Today best-selling author, and so far you've got two mystery series. One of them a cozy. The other you wouldn't quite describe as a cozy. No. But yeah, both, no, it's not. Yeah, they're both very well-received and well-reviewed. So you've got four books, I think, in the Bodies of Art series and three in the Organised Mystery series. Can you tell us which came first? Well, actually, um, the Bodies of Art came first. Um, I had had written about 50 pages of the first book and I had completed the story arc that I developed for that and um, a, a publisher wanted to read it. 
And so I sent the first 50 pages off and she was like, I want this. I want this by the end of the year because I'm going to start a new press and this would be perfect. I've got it you know, for my chiclet mysteries and that sort of thing. And I really hadn't written it as a chiclet mystery per se. I was just having fun with it. I just wanted to, I, I, went, I loved reading um, uh, everything by Elizabeth Peters and, and I, I especially liked the Vicki Bliss series and I liked the way she traveled all over the place and, and I liked pulling in different things and I had a whole idea on how to build a, a history for, for my main character, Laurel, Laurel Beecham. And so in, in doing that, it, it fit into this publisher's idea of a chiclet mystery series and so I finished the book and turned it into her and she liked the book, t- took the first two, but then she changed her own focus. And when she did, she kind of like dropped the ball on what this series needed. Because like you say, it's not really a cozy. It's, it, it's not, a, you know, there's not gratuitous sex, violence, and cussing, but it's not, it doesn't fit into the parameters of a cozy. So um, I got the rights back from her, and that was when I went to Henry. So they took it off for a while and re-released everything so that we could re-release it under the new name. So it looks like it just started up in 2015, but it was really first published in 2013. So that, but but actually the, the Organized Mysteries was really written ahead of it, and I had it sitting and waiting for a publisher when I got the publishing contract for Bodies of Art. So that's kind of one one um, lesson I tell every every group of writers is don't stop writing because the the uh, the book that you put away for a moment because it doesn't have a publisher at that moment because I couldn't I couldn't get an agent interested in it because cozies weren't selling right then really well. They were mid-list uh, things and and different publishers were dropping the series and things like that. And when I did get a publisher interested in it, then that book went up, you know, that book hit the USA Today list. So it, there's always a lesson in there for everybody to just be patient. Yes, and, and so that really brings to mind the question I was going to ask you a little later, and that is, why did you choose Cozies? They have become uh, quite popular now, much more popular perhaps than they were a few years ago. What, what drew you to them at the beginning? Well, I've always read Cozies. I grew up, um, probably the first series that I absolutely adored was the Trixie Belden series, which technically isn't a cozy, but to me it's a YA cozy and um, because they it fits the parameters of a cozy. You've got the mystery, you've got the regular characters, you've got the, the setting in one place. It's it's you, So for a children's series, it's the closest thing I think there is to a cozy. And so um, I grew up reading that, and then I, after I grew out of that, I I went on to Agatha Christie and and Dorothy L. Sayers and 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 a lot like that. And then the in the 80s with the real rebirth of Cozy, um, I was hooked on all the new Cozy authors like uh, Catherine Hall Page. And like I said, I've read Elizabeth Peters since the dawn of time. I think she started publishing back in 69. I have a copy of everything she had, even if even if I wasn't reading her when the book came out, I've got a copy of, of it since then. And and while her books aren't technically cozy, they fit that same parameter too, and and you know some of them do, some of them don't. It's kind of like bodies of art, but they fit that escapism kind of thing. It to me, they're like the the reading equivalent of a 
uh, of an old Cary Grant movie. I loved old Cary Grant movies where you had the really smart woman and the really smart man, and they had really smart conversations, and and you just had to watch to see what happened because you just couldn't take your eyes away because it was a lot of fun. And that's what I wanted to write with with that particular series. And the cozies to me are no different. They're they're escapist um, reading. I know there's going to be a resolution at the end. Um, I I know you know I'm I'm able to follow the 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 footsteps of the protagonist who goes in and solves the crime. And, and, and I like especially the series option so that I, when I go back and I can pick up the next book, I know part of those people there and I can see what they've been doing in the, in the meantime. And that's what I love about writing is going back and finding out what my characters have been doing while I've been gone because it's like subconsciously they've been working and I don't really know it until I sit down and write. And then they have all new adventures that I hadn't even realized until I sit down and start writing the next, the next book. Well, that sounds lovely. And for those who maybe aren't so familiar with your work, let's just explain that the Bodies of Art series, you've got a, a hero called Laurel Beecham, who's an art recovery expert. She's smart, sassy, and pretty single She's sort of like an international business spy in one way, and and she's off chasing adventures to do with international art. The other series, The Organised Mysteries, you've got Kate McKenzie, who's quite different. She's a mum deeply embedded in domestic life, whose business is helping other people get their lives organised. So they're quite sort of polarised characters in terms of one of them's out in the world jet-setting everywhere and the other's very much focused on getting everything organised in a neat boxes. Um, I just wondered, was that is that like two aspects of yourself? Because it seems to me you've got both of those threads very strongly in your character from what I've read about you. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a super organised person. I don't like to look for things, though. So I'm, I'm one of these people where I, when I put something somewhere, don't move it because that's where I'm going to go back and find it. And if I have to look for it, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> and so, so um, you know, so it's it's I, I, I have, you know, I have my files. I have everything the way I want it. And it may not look as organised to everybody else, but I know where it is, you know, that, that sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm not a an uber organizer person, but I understand the concept in the sense that, um, I, you know, I, I want it to be fun. And like with, with Kate, I didn't want her too perfect. I didn't want her to be this perfect person who was totally organized and everybody hated her for it. So that's why she's got a slight OCD problem just so that, you know, you've got a little bit of an edge to her. Um, as far as the, the, the two series go, I'm, you know, I would love to be Laurel. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I watch The Amazing Race with my husband every week, and he sees the gleam in my eye. And every time he says, "Now, if you ever sign up for this thing, don't include me," you know, because because this is my dream, not his, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but as far as like the organized series go, I, I'm probably more like Meg. I I'm I'm a little irreverent. I will do things shortcut. You know, if I see that that the um, exacting way is going to take a lot more time. I will figure a way around it. Um, I pop off when I shouldn't and say things I shouldn't. So, I mean, as far as characters go, I'm probably closer to Meg than I am to to Kate. And that's one of the the fun things about writing that series. I've written Kate as an outsider because I don't currently live in in Vermont. But I let Meg be the the person who lives there so that – 
uh, my my point of view character always doesn't quite know. I mean, she has to be advised about what's what how the community thinks or whatever, so that I don't get myself into trouble that way um, by acting like I know what I'm talking about because I because I'm I'm not a person who lives there at this time, and um, so that's you know that's one of the things I've used in that respect, and and I write in third person for that series for the same reason, just so that. It stays completely in Kate's point of view, but in writing in third person, it I'm 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 not writing as an I I I person like I do with Laurel. So it it you know I can be a lot snarkier with Laurel, where Kate's I think a, a lot nicer person. I, I I loved Laurel dearly. Don't get me wrong, but Kate doesn't you know she, she doesn't tend to be the sarcastic person that that Laurel can come off as. So it's a little bit different. Laurel seems to have quite severe trust issues too. In terms of trusting others, she wants very much to keep herself um, sort of all under her own control and, and, and not rely too much on others. Right. And when she does, she wants to rely on people that that may not be um, people that, that that her employer or whoever might might want her to do. I mean, she's she has a very Machiavellian um, idea of right and wrong. You know, I mean, in her mind, it's like, you know, it's okay to steal if you're stealing something that's already been stolen and you're returning it to the person that it was stolen from. So, I mean, she, she, she will bypass the law if it's to, if it suits her own purpose. Sure. Sure. She, she jet sets around the world like other people just go down to the local shops. And I think you do like your travel. Have you, done a lot of research on the ground for, for the Laurel book? You know, we, we, we've traveled a lot even before I even got the contract. You know, it, it's like, you know, to me, all all vacations should start in London and then you just take off from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and um, and I, I kept this series, I you know, in at the end of the first series, um, I'm not trying to do a little spoiler, not trying to spoil or anything for anybody, but at the end of the first book, there's a situation that ends up making her pretty much tied to Europe and the UK. And I did that so that um, I didn't, I, so, I, so I could really focus in on a geographical location for her. Whereas when the book starts, she, she has kind of been all over and, and, um, in in this respect, she was still in in Europe the entire time, but um, she wasn't she wasn't tied to Europe initially like she ends up being later in the series. And like I said, I, I don't want to spoil it by saying too much in there, but um, that's that's one of the things I did on purpose to to limit the series a little bit more. Yes, and also without wanting to to, to bring any spoilers, the character of Jack continues on into the other books and that relationship develops as well doesn't it right it does and and jack is i mean i you know like i said to me this is like my my homage to the old Cary grant movies where especially like movies like charade where you never were quite sure whether Cary grant was on the good side or the bad side and that's kind of how i modeled jack is because i wanted especially in the first few books to leave readers kind of guessing because Laurel's guessing. I mean, Laurel doesn't know. And as long as Laurel doesn't know anything, the readers can't know anything. And I, and that's part of the, the fun of the mystery is finding out new information, not only about Jack, but Laurel, as the series develops, finds out a lot of surprising information about herself that she didn't know before. So it's the, the 
evolution of the characters. I love seeing the evolution of the characters, how they grow, how they change, how they think differently because of new information down the line. And, and this series has really let me do that a lot. Yeah, that's great. So you've mentioned that you were first published in, well, you started working in 2013. Um, tell us about your life before that. How did you make that transition to writing and, and what were your early years, earlier years of work about? Well, I spent, uh, well, I, 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 before I started with the publishing contract in fiction, I was already making a living selling nonfiction. I, I transitioned when my daughter was born um, because I was working corporate acquisitions. And I never had to travel outside the United States, but I did a lot of traveling inside the United States where I had to just pick up and go and, and work in, in specific offices because so much of, of um, acquisition work is confidential. And some of the information could be sent to us out, outside the office. Others, other things I had to actually go into their offices in order to see the paperwork or see the, the computer detail or whatever. And so um, once my daughter was born, when she was little, it wasn't as much of a problem. When she started school and she needed help with, with homework and, and she had stories she needed to tell me about what happened to the other kids in school. And it, it just got, as she got older, it just got more difficult because when she was younger, I had a niece that, that kept her full time for me when I was gone. So that, that worked out. But when she started school, she really needed mom there. And, um, so that was when I started transitioning, doing nonfiction, and and I did nonfiction really because it was easier to get a fast paycheck. Uh, with fiction, you have to wait. I mean, you have to wait for um, even self-publishing. You have to wait a couple of months before you get paid for a book that somebody bought two and three months ago. But uh, with a with a publisher, you have to wait three to six months, and sometimes a year, depending on you know when the sales come through and which quarter they hit and that sort of thing. And so, right, so to begin with, when I wanted to transition out of corporate, I started writing nonfiction. I did uh, company histories. I did some ghostwriting. I did a lot of uh, ad copy, things that would bring a quick paycheck so that I didn't have to worry about missing my corporate paycheck. And once I got to the point where I was making as much on the writing side as I did on the corporate side, not the benefits. I missed, you know, I wasn't trying to match the benefits, but once I got the salary the same, that was when I made the leap and went ahead and went started writing nonfiction. So I already had that idea in place, but it, you know, nonfiction is a lot different than fiction. Nonfiction, I never had to publicize, publicize myself, market myself at all. It was just, you know, turn in the assignment, fulfill the contract. And then whether it was a, a public, a, a book publisher or a magazine publisher, they took it and I didn't have to do any kind of, you know, oh, great, look at this, read my book, read my whatever, because they did all that. And so that's been a big change with with fiction because I had to really learn the marketing side real quick um, in order to make any kind of impact with my writing because there's so many books that are published every single day and it, every new one can get lost in the in the masses if you don't get your name out. Sure, although you mentioned that you did copywriting as part of that work, that must have been a real advantage when you came to marketing your own book. It is to a degree, but it's almost like I have to turn on that part of my brain. You know, writing copy is is uh, is so focused that it's so different even from from you know novel writing or you know it's closer to back blur, but not even really back blur 
writing. Um, so it's like I have to st- usually stop and just really say, okay, this is going to be a day for marketing and, and really turn on that copywriting brain. And then I'll, then I'll get it done in just a few hours. But it's like I can't just stop and just do it and then go on. Um, it just doesn't come that, that easily for me. Yeah, sure. So moving perhaps into a slightly wider focus, your wider career, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? Uh, probably just building up friendships with other authors. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm always one to, you know, to lend a hand if anybody has a question or anything else like that because I've had so many really great wonderful friend, friendly authors who have given me information and um i you know i'm i think probably you know uh doing nonfiction and doing interviews and things with different people for some so many years ahead of this helped me have no problem asking questions i don't i i don't if i have if i don't understand something i have no problem saying i don't understand this can you explain it would you mind you know and um and people are always always ready to help, but most of the time they aren't going to do it unless you ask them. And I've and I've learned asking is really important. And um, so you know, now I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm able to help more and more authors with the information that I know, just from the information that other authors have told me. And the other thing I've learned really has been the fact that everything in publishing changes so quickly, um, and nothing pretty much stays the same every six months. I mean, you have to be versatile. You have to be ready to just forget about whatever you thought was going to work a year ago because that may be completely obsolete now. And and you, you and you just can't hang on to those things. It's like um, as a writer, we laugh about not wanting to kill our darlings, which are words, you know, words or phrases or sentences. But marketing is the same way. You You can't Keep your the darlings that were the way that market marketing worked for you because they may not work again in six months down the road. Sure. So you always have to be testing and measuring. I guess is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And I do a lot of a lot of spreadsheets. Um, even if I tweet, I I go in and mark down, you know what what um, what tweets I put together with what pictures with what words and and which markets I used for each one and which which tweet teams I used for each one because then I can go back and see which which tweet team is more effective for which type of book and that sort of thing and for you know whether they only go for Amazon or whether they're better for non-Amazon um uh booksellers it, it you know it, there's because I don't want to waste my time there's only so much time in the day and I spend so much more of it marketing than I really than I do writing anymore. I write probably four to five hours a day and I will easily do marketing for five to six hours a day on, on a really busy day when everything's going on. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's just, it, there's so much work to it and making sure that everything is, is going on and you're getting all the, the, um, mar- you know, the, the blogs or podcasts, or you've written the, the guest blog that you need for this for this one, or you've contacted this person to see whether you can get an ad in in this particular marketing venue. I mean, there's just so many moving parts to marketing that um, I just don't want to spend any more time than I have to. Wow, five or six hours a day—that's that's a full time job. <laughs> well, well, I say that. That's when I say that. I mean, that's like for new releases and things. That's not in every. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. that's yeah. when I'm when I'm really focused on on getting 
you know, working hard at it. But I mean, there when the 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 when the book came out, the got the USA Today title, I literally only did marketing for six weeks ahead of that book release. I didn't even try to write. And and that made all the difference because um, it really it really got my name out there. So I mean it had I not done all that work and and made an impact with, with Ritter Ames, which in turn made people start reading my other series too. So um, it 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 does make a difference, but you do have to stop and say, okay, I'm I'm only going to do this so many hours, or I'm going to not do writing at all and only focus on this so that I can get back to writing full-time later. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Switching track a little, um, as we've mentioned, Laurel goes everywhere, and it might be hard to choose where you'd like to suggest your readers follow her, but if you were going to suggest a magical mystery literary tour of your books, where would you suggest people go? Have you got some favorite destinations apart from London or even in London? Well, just, I mean, I, there's no place in London I don't love. That's just, <laughs> that's just a hands-down favorite. Um, but, yeah, and and probably in London, my favorite spot is, is the Tower Complex. I just, I love that. I especially love the promenade along the Thames right there beside it that I could just sit for days on, on one of the benches there and just watch people go by. Um, I also like the birdcage walk where you, you know, you can see the castle and, and you know, uh, Buckingham Palace and everything in the, in the background. And I mean, there's just, there's so many places that are, are known that everybody knows about, you know, and, and when you see them in, in real life, you're like, oh, this is exactly the way I imagined it. And that's, that's what I love about London. Um, as far as, as other places to go, I I have such a huge bucket list. I've never been to the Scandinavian countries, and I would like to go to the Scandinavian countries. And I've never been to Switzerland, even though that's always been a, a very high country on my bucket list, but we've never made it there yet. So um, both of those things for sure. And my husband's from a, from a German background, and he'd like to go back back there again. And and there there's so much that we haven't seen in Germany. So that that would be another place that I want to go to. Um, just, I mean, just as a point of it, I mean, you know, it, it, there's just, there's so many, there's so, I, I really couldn't just narrow it down, but, but I would definitely suggest anybody who, um, who has read a lot of British mysteries, you know, to start, to start in Great Britain or start in Ireland or Scotland, wherever your, your books have drawn your attention, because that, I think that's always a good place to start, um, exploring the world because you already feel at home a little bit there. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Look, turning to Ritter as reader, you know, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and right. it's partly built around this idea that with digital publishing, people are tending to read more in series these days and to look for series. So have you ever in the past been a binge reader? And if so, who have you read? Now, you've kind of indicated a little bit already that Elizabeth Peters would be one of those people. Um but who are your favorites? Oh yeah, yeah, hands down, she's she's my number one. Um, I I have to read the Amelia Peabody series, you know, from start to finish at, at least every five years. I just it's like a summer reading binge for me. And um, this year, I I binge read uh, or binge reread the um, the Kate Atkinson. Uh, Jackson Brody series, another one of my favorites, and I like I like the early um, 
Thomas Lindley series by Elizabeth George. I still like Elizabeth George, but I really liked Helen. So after after she was written out of the series, I didn't, you know, I, I haven't tended to read, read it as quickly anymore, but I do like that one. And I love the Aunt Demity series by Nancy Atherton. I love the, uh, the Bryant and May series by uh, Christopher Fowler. Um, Anything, you know, I, I there anything a little bit a little bit off the wall. Um, probably one of my favorite series is is the Dirk Gently series by uh, Douglas Adams, and I had originally started reading him with uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the to the uh, to the Galaxy, and then when Dirk Gently came out in the in the late eighties, that was when I I. I've still got the hard copies of that, you know, because I immediately got those and found out that I actually liked that series better, even though I thought I couldn't possibly like the other series less. So it was just, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, every every reading adventure is just that, and it's an adventure. And there's so many really good authors out there. Um, as far as like uh, newcomers, I love reading anything by Gigi Pandian. Um, you know, both her, her Jaya Jones series and her um, Accidental Alchemist series are just, just a blast to read. I love, I love reading uh, Larissa Reinhardt. She just, she, her, her new series that she has with um, Maisie Albright is my favorite. I like the Cherry Tucker series, but the new Maisie Albright series is just a hoot. It's just so much fun to read. And um, so, you know, I mean, there, there's, the the list just never ends. I could go on and on and on and on. Sure, you you're a wonderful fun. Some of those writers I'm not familiar with, so we'll certainly put links in the show notes to all of those writers so that people can follow them up. Tell me, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? Oh gosh. Um other than you know, finding a cloning machine so I could clone myself and have the clone do all the marketing stuff, <laughs> um, I, I think early on I would have started market, you know, looking at marketing before I signed the first publishing contract. Um, you know, they keep everybody had always said build your platform, but I couldn't, I couldn't see the point of building a platform when I didn't have a book that I wanted to publicize. And because like I said, I didn't have to, to do that with my nonfiction books. And so, and until I had a publishing contract, I didn't have a fiction book to, to be able to, to publicize. So it didn't seem, it seemed kind of ridiculous to do that. And everybody's idea of a publishing platform is so different anyway. And the idea has changed so substantially in the last five years. So, um, so that's, that's a big difference too. Um, I, I, I guess, Really, as far as it goes, I, I would just have spent more time um, researching, I guess, what what you really had to do to market a book. And not that there's anything out there that really makes sense until you're in the middle of it. But um, that's the only thing I can think of because I I feel like I'm I'm now finally kind of like hitting the the level plane on that, um, and it's taken me. Uh, wow, uh, five years <laughs> to get to the point where um, I I don't feel like it's an uphill struggle all the time, and writing hasn't felt, felt like an uphill struggle like like the marketing has. So that I guess would be be the difference for for fiction writing is the marketing end of it. Yes, and and um, you now I I know from having heard you on Chris Symes' podcast that you've got it very much under control now, but. It, you, and you do it at, at an utterly professional level. So you you do it a lot more 
um, comprehensively than most fiction authors would. Well, it, you know, it's one of those things you just have to just decide what you have time for. Like right now, I have a book coming out March 2nd that I'm doing the final information on. I have a uh, I have the proofread copy of the next Bodies of Art, which will be out at the end of June, and um, that I have to I have to get it proofread and sent to my sent back to my publisher by the middle of next month, and then I also have to turn in uh, the, the the sixth Bodies of Art, which won't be published until 2019, and it's June May 1st. So I I quit doing any marketing about a week ago, and and my sales have dropped. I mean, it's just that's just normal. But it's like, um, but at this point, it's like I have way too many writing irons in the fire, and I know that. So at this point, I have to just say, whoa, we're we're going to back off and not do it. That's not the best way to do it. I mean, there's a lot of authors who will pump up their their Facebook ads and things like that. I have some AMS ads running, but I don't really do Facebook that much anymore because I don't find them as cost effective as they were initially. But you know, not having, not doing anything for six weeks will make you know the next three months harder if you if you don't do anything at all. So it's like you know talking to you today and doing some AMS ads and getting on Facebook once in a while and throwing something up. That's about all I'll be able to have time to do for the next few weeks. But at the same time, I still have to do something because if not, you're you're starting from a dead stop, and that's never an easy thing to do, even if you've already built your name. So you need to keep your momentum going a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So. I guess we're coming around, we're running out of our time together. It's been fabulous to talk, but you've you've indicated a little bit, but what is next for Rita, the writer? Have you got projects under development? Right. I have a the fourth book in the Organized Mystery Series comes out March, March the 2nd, which is called Organized for Some More Death. And Meg has, has taken Kate completely out of her comfort zone and took her camping. So that was a lot of fun. And um, and of course they they find a dead body, <laughs> and um, then then at the end of June, uh, the the last Tuesday in June, the fifth Bodies of Art book comes out. It's called Bronze Betrayals, and uh, Laurel will finally find out uh, you know way more about herself than she ever imagined, and um, and they they actually. They they one of the criminals gets caught finally, so that's that's another thing you know because they've had they keep adding criminals. They started off with one and then they got up to three, and so we're we're down to one again. So um, uh, then the the next series that I'm starting at the end of uh, this summer is actually another cozy series that has been in the works for a couple of years. I just haven't had the time to to spend on it to market it and get it out because I didn't want to do I didn't want to put out the first book until I knew I would have time to put the second book out pretty soon after so so fans didn't have to wait a long time and that one uh, was originally titled the Frugalista Mysteries but then I found out that Frugalista was a trademarked uh, name so it became the Frugalissa her her name is Lissa uh, Alyssa so the Frugalissa Mysteries and she um, she's a blogger who uh, finds ways to 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 save money and and keep herself working at home while she has two boys and her her husband has a uh, 
job as a as a photojournalist outside the country. So he's not there. So she's pretty much, you know, has to run the household. And and it's a lot of fun. It's it's probably the you know a, a funnier series. I've got two two small boys in it and they're just they're a hoot to write. And um and that that it's just a different um different concept than the other ones. But they're again it's it's right in the same wheelhouse is kind of what I always do because I I want books that people can can fall into and say, I know I'm going to have a good time when I finish reading this. And, and that's, that's what this one is again. No, no heavy, heavy mystery for me as far as, um, yeah, there's always somebody that gets killed and somebody get, that gets found out as a murderer, but that's about as, as, as dark as it goes. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. So where can readers find you online? Well, the easiest way is just www.ridderames.com. And um, I I blog from there when I have time. I have all my information on my books up there. I have um, a lot of fun stuff too. Since I have the art mystery series, I have uh, coloring pages people can download that relate to my series. And I have excerpts of my of my books. I have uh, what reviewers have said about my books. I I let everybody know when when a book is is on sale and there's a a site there to I mean a link there to sign up for my newsletter which is probably the best way to get information from me because um I let the newsletter people know first. I mean they're 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 my bread and butter. Yeah, you know, they're the ones that that have signed on and said I want to know. So they know ahead of everybody else even even for the blog usually. But um that's that's the easiest way to find me. I'm on I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Again, it's Ritter Ames on both of them. Uh, I have, my author page is is just Ritter Ames Books um, for Facebook, and um, for Twitter it's it's at Ritter Ames. That's it. So I'm I'm fairly uncreative when it comes to that because it's just easier for people to find me that way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you certainly um, you blog on other people's blogs as well don't you from time to time I do I'm I'm I wrote a blog post for uh, Drew's book musing this weekend where uh, she sent me a, some interview questions to uh, interview Kate and I, I I love doing that I love when the when the bloggers went want to interview my characters because they're a lot more fun than interviewing me and um, so that was that was something I did this week and I'll have more probably coming up in the bodies of art but comes out in June, but it's just um, that that kind of information again is on my blog. And when I do podcasts like this one, I put the link up on my blog so people can listen to it later if they miss it the first time. And and it, like I said, my 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 website is just kind of a repository for everything that anybody can can want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Rita, thank you so much for giving us your valuable time. It's been wonderful to talk today. And um, we'll we'll keep an eye on what you're doing with interest. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I've had a great time. Thanks, Rita. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. 
Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.